Well, today I got some interesting stuff to share with you. Uh, hopefully you'll find it interesting. If you're new with us, I took the congregation through the history of the kings and the prophets of Judah. It's found in the Bible, 1st and 2nd Kings. Some of it's in 2nd uh, Samuel and some of it's in 1st and 2nd Chronicles. But we went through 1st and 2nd Kings. And we went historically, chronologically through. And I said when we were doing that, but all the prophets that you read about in the Bible, they were working in there too. So we'd finish Kings and then go back and I'd show you where all the prophets fit in. And that's what we've been doing for the last several weeks. So that you could have a little historical background because we've already been there. But if you haven't been with me, that's okay. Um, you're not going to miss out on anything. I'll catch you up. On this chart, by the way, I can give you a copy of this. Just email the office and we'll, we'll send you a PDF of it. I took off a section of the chart, blew it up so you can see it. You can see this word right here, Josiah. This is the king of Judah whose time frame we're talking about. And while he was king, this guy here, Zephaniah, was a prophet. Habakkuk was a prophet. Nahum was a prophet. And Jeremiah was a prophet. So during his kingdom, there were all sorts of prophets ministering. It was important because the kingdom was falling apart. The people had turned their backs on God, and God sent them a bunch of prophets to get them back on track again. But they weren't listening. But Josiah, this king, he was a good guy. He was listening. And he had it within his heart to find God, to restore his personal relationship with God. Let me read to you a passage of scripture, and then I'll give you a little bit more about Josiah and the prophets that ministered around him. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah. Don't you just love the Bible? In the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now, if this was written today, and it happened yesterday, we would say in the year 2012 on August 4th or whatever the date is. And everybody would know exactly when that was. They didn't have that calendar. So this prophet and God wanted us to know exactly when this happened. How? Well, this is how. This is the guy the son of this guy, the son of this guy, the son of this guy. So you know who we're talking about. And this happened during the days that Josiah was king. Okay, we've got it nailed down. But what was going on when Josiah was king? Well, Israel, the northern tribes of Israel, had already been destroyed by Assyria. Judah was the only nation left that was supposed to walk with God. They had turned from God, and God was going to destroy them. So this guy, Josiah, becomes king, and he sees that the temple is dilapidated, and he tells everybody, we're going to restore and rebuild the temple. So they're cleaning it out. They're taking out all the idols. They're freshening up the paint. They're rebuilding the broken walls. And the priest comes to him basically and says, hey, we found a book. So Josiah has his scribes read it to him. And it's the book of the law of God. And as he's hearing the covenant read to him, he's getting more and more distressed because he's realizing that the children of Israel had made a covenant with God and broken it. And the consequences for the broken covenant were spelled out, which the end result would be destruction of their nation and the dispersion of their people. And he realized that that's where they were at. In fact, it was like any day now we should be destroyed based on this. And he tore his robes and he, he mourned and he cried out to God, and he sent for a prophetess to find out if this is what's really going to happen. And God said, you got it right. 
I am going to destroy your people because you have turned your back on me and forsaken me and worshipped other gods. But because you've humbled your heart and you've sought me with all of your heart, I won't do it now. I will postpone it. And that gave him a lot of relief. But postponing it till when? Zephaniah is one of the prophets that ministered to that king. He's one of the prophets that wrote about the pending destruction of Judah right in this time frame. So we're going to look at some of the things he said. Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place. The names of the idolatrous priests with pagan priests. Those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops. Those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but also swear by Moloch or Milcom. Those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It is at hand any time now. This is the warning. The day of the Lord. How many of you have ever heard of that expression before, the day of the Lord? Yeah, it's very well known, but most people don't really know what it means. It means when God is going to come and judge. He was coming to judge Judah. That was the day of the Lord for them. But there's another day of the Lord, and we're going to talk about that when we get into the prophet Joel. So I'm going to put that off for a week or two. It said they worship the host of heaven and Baal and Molech. Well, what we know about Molech worship is that they would sacrifice their babies to this god. Disgusting, evil practice. Now, some people say, oh, no, they weren't really sacrificing their babies. They were just passing their babies through the fire in dedication to Baal. Oh, that's nice. However you want to look at it, it's evil. Pure, bad, evil. Molech sounds just like the Hebrew word Melech. Melech means king. So Molech is like taking the words for shame, the vowels out of that word, and putting them into the word king and changing the way the word king is pronounced. From Melech, king, to Molech, shameful king. It's kind of like just a, a whole made-up word. And it's, it's presumed that some of the Jewish writers did that because they didn't want to really put out his name. They wanted to just basically say this is a shame, what the people were doing. I don't know if that's accurate. It might just be a poetic play on words and grammar that the Jewish scholars came up with around the, you know, 100 years or so before Yeshua, Jesus. But Molech was a well-known deity back in those days and his worship was evil. Baal worship was evil. Basically, the children of Israel, it's not like they were worshiping God and then just decided to do a few silly little things. They had totally turned their backs on God and had become evil. In our culture, we're so open and accepting to everything that we have a hard time considering another religion evil. And honestly, in our culture, from our perspective of things, things aren't evil. It's just they have a different belief system. But imagine a belief system that requires you to kill your children. That's evil. A belief system that requires you to fornicate at least annually with temple prostitutes. 
evil and the diseases and the illegitimate children and the, ugh, it's just bad. And you, you know, in our culture, we know right from wrong. I'm not saying we follow it. And I'm not saying people are forgetting it, but we know right from wrong. Don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat. We know those things are wrong. We may do them, but we still know they're wrong. Be faithful to your spouse. Don't commit adultery. Ah, we may do it. We see it on TV, but we know it's wrong. They had rejected God's program of right and wrong. They were just pursuing wrong. They didn't care about right anymore. They were sold to do evil. Let's rip off as many people as we can. Let's rob and steal and cheat and kill and commit adultery. All those things we know are wrong, let's do those better than everybody else. That's where they were, and that's why God was getting ready to destroy them. They had abandoned goodness and bought into the lie of evil. Lock, stock, and barrel. Full bore, blow ahead for evil. And God said, that's it. I'm going to wipe you out. Well, then Josiah came. And he put an end to Moloch worship, to Baal worship, to the worship of all the hosts of heaven. Major reformation. 2 Kings 22.10. Let's take a look. Go ahead and pull up the slide there. Notice it says 23.10 on your slide. That's a typo. It's 22.10. This is what Josiah did in part. He defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire to Moloch. Every religion has their rules of purity and acceptability. So what Josiah decided to do was defile the place where Moloch worship was happening. That way it could never happen again. Kind of like if I wanted to defile this place so nobody ever worshipped here again, I'd strew it with radioactive material. Because you'd stay away. That's what would do it. See, in our culture... Defile means nothing. If somebody does something evil here, we pray, we clean, we're good to go. But in that culture, man, you did something evil there, it was done. You never go back there again. So what did he do in this place called Topheth, which was in the valley of the son of Hinnom? I know those are weird words to you. But if you visit Jerusalem today, you can go to the valley of the son of Hinnom. So let me draw you a little picture for those of you. I should have brought pictures. I, I wasn't thinking. You think of the Temple Mount with the big dome on there. And sometimes maybe you've seen a picture of those walled-up gates. Those are the eastern gates that enter the Temple Mount. And that's the vision you see from the Mount of Olives. So the Mount of Olives is just across a little valley across from Jerusalem. That little valley is called the Kidron Valley. Now, if you walk south along that valley, it turns and goes to the Valley of the Son of Hinnom. So it's walking distance from where God was worshipped, supposedly. Almost eyeball distance. Maybe there were some hills in the way. But if you got up on another hill, you could probably see both. So that's to give you a little layout of the land. That's where the children were being sacrificed. So Josiah went there, dug up a bunch of bones of dead people, and put them on their altar. Killed the priests who were doing this and sacrificed them. Killed them on the altar. That defiled the altar and defiled the place. They couldn't do that there anymore. So when it says, he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, this is how he did it. He just took a whole bunch of dead bodies and piled them up there, some of which he made by killing the bad guys. And that ruined the place. It was no longer a good house of worship. You know, even though we don't have the same sense of purity and holiness as they did back in those days, how many of you would be uncomfortable moving into a house that had just had a mass murder in it? Let me see your hands. Almost everybody. 
Yeah, why? You don't have to tell me why. It's understandable why. You wouldn't want to move into that house. Well, I won't ask for a show of hands, but a lot of people wouldn't want to take over a building for a church that used to be used for Satan worship. They just wouldn't want to do that. Me, I would. It's like, let's glorify this place and give it to God. It was for used for the devil. Now let's make it used for God. Yeah. But I understand the other side, too. Hey, man, this place is evil. I don't want to be here. I understand that. That's what happened there. Well, Valley of the Son of Hinnom. In Aramaic, which is the language, Hebrew and Aramaic are virtually synonymous back in those days, uh, is Gai Hinnom. That's how you'd say it, Gai Hinnom. And a, a shortened version through the Greek just came out as Gehenna. From the days before Jesus, so this happened roughly, let's just say, 600 years B.C. From then to the days of Jesus, this place, Gehinnom, became a symbol and a synonym of hell. They made babies pass through fire. They put dead bodies there, and then they turned it into a dump that was always burning and stinking and smelling, and it was foul and odious and yucky. In fact, by the time the New Testament was written, one of the main words used in the New Testament for the word hell is Gehenna. Let me read to you an example verse from Mark 9. Jesus is saying, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Two hands going into hell. The word there is not hell, it's Gehenna. And that picture of the constant burning from the babies to the garbage dump to the dead bodies with the worms, the same concept is the concept of hell. You want to see hell on earth? Ancient Gehenna was hell on earth. And that became a synonym of hell. To this very day, it's the word Jewish people use for hell. That's the word Jewish people know if they have tradition, if they know their tradition. They use the word Gehenna. Speaking of Jewish people, you know, Christianity was an outgrowth of Judaism. Jesus was Jewish. The apostles were Jewish. So Christianity should have the same belief system as biblical Judaism. Not modern Judaism, because it's changed which we'll talk about in a moment, but biblical Judaism. But today, you talk to a lot of Jewish people, even Jewish people who go to the synagogue, they don't know that hell is a Jewish concept. They're uneducated in Jewish tradition because Jewish tradition definitely teaches there is a hell. Um, one of the passages I like to point people to in the Old Testament is Daniel 12 too. It says this, listen. Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So the concept of a resurrection, some going to just, to the you know, eternal life, and some going to shame and contempt, is presented in the Old Testament. There's plenty of passages that talk about wicked people going down into Sheol, which is another word for hell. And there's even a passage that talks about burnings. But the rabbis all believed in hell. In fact, I wanted to give to you what the general Jewish sentiment was on hell. So I went to, you ready for this? JewishEncyclopedia.com, which is basically an exact reproduction of a huge Jewish encyclopedia from the 50s or something. 
and I took out some notes just to read to you exactly what Judaism teaches about hell. Let me read it to you. So I plugged in the word hell, and here's what came up. See Gehenna. I told you. They don't even have an article for hell. They just shoot you over to Gehenna. So I'm over in Gehenna, figuratively speaking. Thank you. And this is what it says about Gehenna. The place where children were sacrificed to the god Moloch was originally in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to the south of Jerusalem. And for this reason, the valley was deemed to be accursed. And Gehenna, therefore, soon became a figurative equivalent for hell. Hell-like paradise was created by God. Opinions vary as to the situation, extent, and nature of hell. So in Judaism, a belief in hell is a belief, it's real. That's what they believe. But opinions vary as to the situation, extent, and nature of hell. Now here's some of the bullets I pulled out of there about the hell that they believe in. It says, the fire of Gehenna never goes out. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Let me read to you the verse of Jesus from just a moment ago. To go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In the one verse he said twice, the fires of hell are not quenched. Judaism teaches that the fire of Gehenna never goes out. Jesus was giving us, who read the New Testament, Jewish thought on hell which is the true parts. The parts they got wrong, he didn't share. The part that they knew right, he shared. The fire, here, here's a bullet point, the fire is 60 times as hot as any earthly fire. Now, where did that come from? It doesn't matter. Obviously, it's, in, you know, it's just some figure that they came up with. Who cares if it's literal or not? The point is, they believe that the fires of hell are just so amazingly nasty that they can't even be compared to real fire. It's worse. That's the point they're trying to make. The fires of hell are the worst fires you can imagine. Um, there's a smell of sulfur in Gehenna. How many of you have ever heard the word fire and brimstone? Yeah, brimstone is sulfur. So when it says there's a smell of sulfur in Gehenna, brimstone. And that word brimstone is used in the Bible. So their concept of it being a hot place where the fires never go out with the smell of brimstone, that's our belief too. That is biblical belief. Then this one might seem a little counterintuitive, but wait for it. Gehenna is dark. And it even says, in spite of the immense masses of fire, it's like night. Some people say, well, how can there be fire and it can be dark? Easy. You ever been to a campground? Throw a fire. It's still dark out. But didn't Jesus call hell the place of outer darkness? He said, cast them into outer darkness where there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus also said, hell is a place of fire that never goes out, that smells like brimstone, that is also dark. You know, the pictures of the place that I come up with, it was just creepy. I'd hate to be in that place. And then it says, it's assumed that there's an angel prince in charge of Gehenna. So according to Jewish thought, there's an angel prince, a chief angel in charge of hell. Well, in the book of Revelation, one of the judgments is the abyss is opened up and these demon hordes of locusts come out. And it says they have a king over them, the prince of the bottomless pit, whose name is Abaddon or Apollyon or Apollos. 
So they're not that far off. According to the book of Revelation, there is an angel prince over Abaddon, but it shouldn't be called an angel. See, the difference between an angel and a demon, a demon was a fallen angel, somebody who previously was an angel but turned his back on God. So the difference between an angel and a demon, they're the same, but one hates God and has turned from him and the other hasn't. So it's not really, I wouldn't call it an angel prince over Gehenna, but maybe a demon prince over Gehenna. The Greek concept of Hades, the god of the underworld, is not that far off from biblical truth. It's not a god, it's a fallen angel. Of course, they like to be called gods. And when people worship them, they become the gods of the other religions. Baal is very similar to Zeus. These guys are just fallen angels. They're demons who want to be worshipped as gods. Then it goes on to say this about judgment. It's assumed in general that sinners go to hell immediately after the, their death. The famous teacher, John, Yochanan ben Zekai, wept before his death. This is all from the Jewish Encyclopedia. The famous teacher, Rabbi, Yochanan ben Zekai, wept before his death because he did not know whether he would go to paradise or hell. Let me tell you a little bit about this guy. He wasn't just some generic rabbi. Extremely famous man. In fact, my partner in ministry on Saturday's congregation, Michael Lapoff, went to an Orthodox day school growing up as a child, and it was named after where this guy taught. Very famous guy. He was the chief rabbi in Israel in his days. When were his days? Well, he was born about in the year 30. Jesus died in about the year 33. So he was born right around when Jesus was doing his ministry, and when Jesus died, he started to grow up. Well, when he was a mature man, an old man, the Romans had come in, and they were going to destroy Jerusalem because the children of Israel rebelled against Rome. He had himself snuck out of Jerusalem in a coffin to go and meet with the Roman general Vespasian to try to mitigate circumstances, to try to limit the damage. He was telling Israel, don't fight Rome, you're going to lose. Don't fight Rome, you're going to lose. And then he went out, Vespasian, please don't destroy everybody. I'm doing the best I can. I'm trying to make peace. He said, by the way, and he might have even said, God told me, but you're going to become the next emperor, which, by the way, he did. And Vespasian was so impressed with this rabbi's prophecy that he spared him and gave him some boons, you know, grant three wishes, as it were. And he asked that if the leadership of Israel could be spared, relocated to another town outside of Jerusalem, way outside in the Galilee, and continue doing their rabbinic things. And Vespasian said, yes, you may. So he reconvened the Sanhedrin in a place called Yavne, which is in the Galilee, after Jerusalem was destroyed. Now, this may not mean a lot to you, but it's information that's healthy for you to have, especially should God give you the opportunity to share your faith with Jewish people. Judaism in the old days, that is the Judaism that Moses gave through the Bible, the Torah, was all based on the temple in Jerusalem. All had to do with holidays and sacrifices and ceremonies and rituals. If there was no temple, there was no Judaism. It wasn't like an extension of Judaism, it was Judaism. You following me? Well, Rome just came in and destroyed the temple. 
this rabbi, Yochanan ben Zakkai, met with a bunch of 70 other rabbis up in Yavne and said, now what do we do? They weren't followers of Jesus. So there's like, now what do we do? No temple, no Judaism. But we can't let our entire people group disintegrate and our faith go away. We have to do something. So they came up with a Judaism that could function without a temple. The Judaism of today is the byproduct of that meeting in Yavne with Yochanan ben Zakkai. So in a very real sense, we say Judaism is one of the oldest religions on the planet and it's older than Christianity. Well, yes and no, because true Christianity is part of Judaism. It's an outgrowth of, outgrowth of it. But modern Judaism is an outgrowth of Yavne, which happened, you know, 30, 50, 60, 70 years after Jesus. So it's actually younger in its application than Christianity. Not that it matters, old or younger, it's irrelevant, but I wanted you to understand the, the history behind it. So here's this guy, and he makes up all these rules. For example, in the temple, they would sacrifice in the morning, in the noon, and at night. So he said, we can't sacrifice, so we will substitute prayer. And to this very day, religious Jewish people pray morning, noon, and night at the time when the sacrifices were made. That's why they pray then. And he said, prayer will suffice for sacrifice. And he came up with a whole bunch of other things to replace exactly what was going on in the temple. Well, here's what the Torah said. The words of Moses from God to the Jewish people. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. It's the blood that makes atonement. And now he's saying prayer will do. Was he right? On his deathbed, this greatest rabbi in Israel, outside of the faith, wept. And his disciples said, why are you weeping, O great one of Israel? Because I'm about ready to die, and I don't know if I'm going to paradise or Gehenna. Imagine being his disciple. Why would I follow you? But that wasn't, the thought was, if you don't know, what hope is there for us? If you can be lost, we're all lost. That was the senti sentiment at this guy's death. Very famous rabbi. So to this very day, Judaism has no assurance of salvation. There's not a Jewish person on the planet based on their religion who can say confidently, I'm definitely going to heaven. It's more like, well, if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, I'll go. If I don't do anything really bad, I'm pretty sure I'll go. But pretty sure. There's even somebody in the Talmud said something about, hey, if you're Jewish, you'll get into heaven. As long as you don't murder or commit idolatry, you're good to go. But if Yochanan ben Zakkai wasn't sure he was good to go, how can anybody else be sure? But you know what? I'm Jewish. I'm good to go. In fact... I don't plan on weeping on my deathbed. I'm planning on partying on my deathbed. Hey, look, I got another hour. Go get some chocolate cake. <laughs> Pop open some bubbly. Because I'm going to go see the Lord. But it's not because of what I've done. It's not because of my good deeds. It's because of what Jesus has done. So here's a summary of that part of Zephaniah. God's going to destroy Judah because they are worshiping Moloch and doing all sorts of evil things. Josiah cried out to God, and God said he would spare 
Judah for now because Josiah was such a good guy. Josiah eradicated Moloch worship in the place that became the symbol and word for hell. Now there's a whole new sin that Zephaniah introduces us to. One that I don't recall seeing in any of the other prophets. It might be there, but I definitely haven't drawn it out for you. So for us, it's a new sin that he says Judah is guilty of in addition to all these other things. Let me read it to you. And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. It shall come to pass that I will search Jerusalem with lamps. That's their way of saying under a microscope, very thoroughly. And I'm going to look for people who are settled in their complacency. Complacency is a sin. That is complacency with God. And they would say something like, ah, the Lord's not going to do good or bad. It wasn't they said there is no God. And it wasn't that they said, I don't want to worship God. God, no God, yes God, who cares, whatever. You know, it's almost like American deism. There's a God, he made the planet and he stepped away and he's not involved anymore. It's kind of like that. God's not going to judge us. God's not going to do anything. God doesn't care. I'm not interested in God. God's not interested in me. That Hebrew word for complacency, though, is very odd. And different translations translate it a different way. Uh, The New American Standard translates it stagnant in spirit. Stagnant comes close. Other words, curdled or congealed. How can that be complacency? The idea is, imagine a barrel of wine. And at the bottom of the wine is all the the dregs, it's called. That's the the particles and the the yuckiest. The the stuff, kind of like the grounds from the coffee. You pour out the liquid, you don't eat the grounds. You throw the grounds in the trash. Well, in wine, it's the same thing. It's got grounds. It's got dregs. You don't eat the dregs. This word complacency is sort of like just stewing in the dregs. I could just, you know, just sitting down in the dregs and enjoying life. You're just amongst the dregs. That's kind of what the word means. It's just kind of, ew, who'd want to be that way? That's what the word means. Webster's takes the word complacency, the English word, and says it means this. Self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by unawareness of actual dangers or deficiencies. So the idea is you're just fat and happy, just sitting there. You don't know what's going on. You don't even care. You know, you've got a glass of wine in your hand. You're sitting in the dregs, and life is good. You don't know you're sitting in filth, rotten. Nah, you don't know. You don't care. It's all good. Life's good. It's good. I want you to be good. I want you to have a good life. I want you to be fat, dumb, and happy. Well, fat and happy, not dumb. If complacency is a sin, I know there's degrees of complacency. Their complacency was God, Shemad, whatever, we don't care. But even amongst God followers, aren't there levels of complacency? So I wanted to make sure that if you're a complacent person, that you step out of your complacency into activity with God. And if you're a God follower and a God server, I want you to analyze yourself and see how close you are to the dregs and how close you are to full service to God. So I've got for you a complacency test. I'm going to ask my ushers to come in now and pass out the complacency test. Are you guys complacent? Hello? 
ushers, I need you. Thank you for the object lesson. It can end now. Thank you. <laughs> Let's give these guys a hand. All right, so they're handing out a complacency test. If you'll put it up on the screen for me. We're gonna, I'm actually going to step away from my sermon for a few minutes and let you fill this out. Let me explain to you how it works. So he's going to hand this to you. Grab it, but don't look at it. I'm explaining it up here. All right? So let me take a look at the next slide. Now, those of you at home, you don't have the test, but you can see the slide right there, and you can just fill out the numbers and do the exact same thing we're doing here. So I've got two questions on the complacency test. Again, this is for you. Question number one, how many hours per week do you spend serving God, and what percentage of your time does this represent? So how many hours a week do you spend serving God? On column one, we've got weekday. Column two, we've got weekend. All you need to do is work your way across. How many hours do you work a day? Put it here. How many hours do you sleep a day? Put it here. How many hours do you do pretty much everything else? Put it here. How many hours do you spend serving God a day? Put it here. I've given you weekdays and weekends because a lot of us serve God a lot on the weekends and not so much on the weekdays. There are only 24 hours. Now, see that number you're going to end up with, the total number of serving God per day? We're going to turn that into a percentage. But you don't have to know any math because we've got a little apparatus on your piece of paper right here that just tells you how many hours equal what percentage of your day. So if you serve God... Five hours a day, down here, it says five equals 21%, so you put it in right here, 21%. But if you serve God eight hours on the weekend, eight hours equals 33%, you put 33% right there. Okay, so that's how the hours works. Don't cheat. Don't lie. This is for you. Now on the bottom, how much money per month do you give to God, and what percentage does that represent? Column A, you're not going to turn these in. This is just for you. The amount you earn monthly. Now, your paycheck might be $3,729.86. Whatever, just put a round figure. It's to give you an idea here. It doesn't have to be scientifically accurate. Just to give you an idea. So let's say you make $2,000 a month, and you give $20 a month. You take your 20, divided by 2,000, and that gives you 1%. So you do your own little math here. You put one number divided by the other number, you get your percent. So I'm going to step away for a few minutes give you a few moments to fill out your complacency test, and then I will come back for just a couple more minutes to give you a little more data and uh, encourage you before we go home. How many of you need more time? How many of you are too embarrassed to raise your hands, but you still need more time? Raise your hands. <laughs> um, how many of you are not pleased with your results? Yeah, me too. This isn't about condemnation. This is just to help us out. This is a diagnostic test. You know, I hate taking my car into the mechanic because I'm almost certain he's going to tell me something needs to fix. But sometimes you just got to take it in and get it fixed. Now, this is a simple test. It's not straight up accurate. For example, sleeping eight hours a day just as a figure, is a good thing. God made you to sleep eight hours a day. So it's not like, oh, that's eight hours, I'm not serving God. So that shouldn't even been in the, you know, just pull that eight hours out because the numbers are skewed. And working, per se, may not be serving God, but God made you to need to work also. 
Now, you should be serving God at work. So working is not necessarily serving God, but you should be serving God at work. And there's different ways to do that. Like when I had a secular job, I started a Bible study on lunch break. And that was how I served God. But that wasn't the only way I served God. And this way, you also need to serve God too. Um, whatever job you have, work at it as if you're serving God. You know? Work hard. Not because your boss is worthy of you working hard, but because you're honoring God by working hard. Those who serve God are promised huge rewards. I've got a few passages of Scripture for you. 1 Corinthians 2.9. However, as it's written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, it goes on to say, but God has revealed it to us. Well, yeah, we know the outline, but how many of you really think you've got a handle of what heaven's going to be like? I don't. Because even though the Bible tells me what it looks like, and even a little bit of what it feels like, it's so beyond my experience, I don't understand it. It'd be kind of like me telling you about a new kind of fruit you've never had, what it tastes like. You're never going to know till you taste it. And you're never going to know what heaven's like till you go there. But we have an idea. But I can tell you, it's so awesome. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Revelation 21, 3 through 5. The dwelling of God is with men. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And he said, write it down, for these words are trustworthy and true. No more mourning, crying, or pain. Wow. I want that. I want that more than anything. And it'll be a gift from God to those who serve him. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. So when I told you, you go to work, but don't do your job as if you're working for men. Say, oh, but you know, I, I only get $3,000 a month. I'm worth more. You know, we stumbled upon this really cool thing. My wife, you know, most of our lives, I was the bread earner. We wanted it that way. We wanted her to homeschool the kids and raise the kids, and I'd come to work. That's what we wanted. Till they got older, and we were done with the homeschooling thing, and we wanted to send them off to a regular school. But not just any school. We wanted to find the best schools in, in the city. And, and we went outside of the city when we went to Vail, because we thought they were the best. But now my wife went to school, and she got a job. Now we've got two careers in our house. This is new. We've never done that before. It's pretty cool. And at her job, they have matching funds for a retirement account, which is way cool. So, I, I, like I tell people, I got good news and bad news. Well, well, what's the good news? Well, the good news is we got matching funds up to a certain amount from my wife's retirement account. Awesome. What's the bad news? We just started our retirement account. <laughs> you know, I'm not that far from retiring age. Not going to do as much good. But it's cool that they do the matching funds thing. But that's not why we should work hard 
God says we should work hard for him. He does better than match funds. He rewards you for every hour you put in in his name. So maybe you're only making $3,000 a month and you deserve five. You're going to get better than five worth when you hit heaven. So you've got a retirement account is what I'm telling you. And God manages it. And it's going to be amazing. I saw a picture the other day. Guy talking about where he was going on vacation. It was a Facebook picture. It was just like this beautiful resort over the water. Literally in the water. And I just looked at the picture and I went, ah, kind of like this. Yeah, I could, I could be there. So in my wildest dreams, that's where I would live. Well, God's got a place for you better. It's your retirement account. Don't worry about this world. Just serve God because he's got huge resort for you prepared in heaven. It's even called in the King James a mansion. Revelation 22, 12 says, Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. All right. There's more I could say. I'm out of time. I'm way past out of time. Zephaniah said there's people who are complacent. They're just sitting in the dregs. They don't care about God one way or another. And I fear that that's how our culture is today. It's not like America is an atheistic country. Most people believe in God. But they're just sitting in the dregs. Their belief in God is irrelevant to their life. It doesn't do them any good. And they don't realize that they are doomed. Zephaniah talked about Hades indirectly, of course, and complacency. And so I call today's sermon Complacency, the Gateway to Hell. For those of you listening to my voice this morning, I don't know where you are on the complacency test. Not my business to know. It's my business to encourage you to come further along, closer to serving God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. If you've not made a commitment to God at all, I encourage you to do so. Tell Jesus you're willing to follow him, that you'll turn from your sins, that you believe in him. We have some folks who will be in this prayer room afterwards if you want a little help making that prayer decision. And for those of you who have made a commitment to God, but you are not pleased with how your complacency analysis came out, fine, tomorrow's a new day. And I encourage you not to just say, okay, I'm going to change things. That doesn't work. Go home and make a plan to change things. If it's your hours of service, you decide what you're going to cut and give it to God. Maybe you'll give up a football game once a month to serve at the church. Maybe you've been putting in voluntary overtime and you haven't had time with your family. Cut it in half. Maybe you wash your car every Friday evening. Stop doing that. Do it once a month and give the other three to the Lord's work here at the church. What I'm saying is don't just say I'm going to change. Make a plan. Maybe you didn't like how your money part came out. Man, you're only giving God 3% and you want to go give more. Fine. Set yourself a goal. And you set the goal, whatever your goal is. Say, by next year I want it to be 5%. Fine. Make a plan. You know, I don't have any more money, so quit buying stuff. And I don't mean just say, I'm going to quit buying stuff. Make a plan. You know what? I go to see every new movie that comes out. I'm not going to do that. 
I'll see every other new movie that comes out. Take that money, give it to the church. Or you know what? I buy two Frappuccinos every day. It's five bucks each, man. I'm going to buy one Frappuccino a day, give that money to God. I'm going to give it to Michael Tool's new ministry to feed people. See what I'm saying? Don't just say you're going to change. Make an actual plan to change. And I'm going to tell you, the further you get from the dregs, the happier life's going to be. You're going to be filled with joy, excitement, and energy, and you're going to rejoice in the things that God does with your time and your talents and your treasures. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, help us to get out of the dregs. And for those of us that aren't in the dregs, not to beat ourselves up as if we were, but to do our best to serve you with all our hearts, our soul, our mind, and our strength. And if there's anybody here who has not yet made a commitment to serve you, to follow you with all their heart, I pray you would bless them, call them, and encourage them to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.